0: COVID has had a huge impact on our education system. A few weeks ago on this pod, we spoke to Sir Kevin Collins, the government school catch-up czar, about the challenges of helping children and young people get their learning back on track after a year of lockdown and restrictions. But as well as the challenge, might there also be an opportunity Could the closer engagement of parents with their children's schooling, could the greater emphasis on children's well-being, could innovations in e-learning and assessment, could all those things lead to a rethink of schooling? What it's for, how it should take place, a rethink that might enable us to move beyond the sterile dichotomy between progressives and traditionists. This, I think, will be one of the hopes of today's distinguished guest on Bridges to the Future.
1: This is Bridges to the Future, the Big Ideas podcast, brought to you by the RSA with your host, Matthew Taylor.
0: I'm delighted to be joined by Guy Claxton, visiting professor at King's College, a cognitive scientist and more to the point, one of our country's, indeed the world's leading educational thinkers. He's also the author of an engaging and authoritative new book, The Future of Teaching, and the myths that hold it back. Guy, how are you?
1: I'm very well, thank you, Matthew. Pleased to be with you.
0: Well, thanks for giving us the time. It's been, I've loved reading the book. Let's get straight into the first question, which is, why did you write... You've written a lot of books. Why did you choose to write this book at this time?
1: It seemed to me that there's a fairly incontrovertible need... Manifested by lots of worldwide initiatives to explore new styles of teaching in the light of particular challenges to young people. COVID, for example, youngsters being out of school have been challenged to manage and organize their own learning in a way that they often haven't at school. Fake news challenges all of us, and particularly young people, to develop their capacity for critical. Thinking for critical appraisal. Entrepreneurship, the explosion of self employment, uh, requires degrees of curiosity and imagination. So, all of these qualities of mind ought to be, in my thinking, the business of school. We ought to be exploring what style of teaching delivers not only knowledge and grades, important though those are, but also these other attributes. However, somewhat to my dismay, it seemed to me that this call for innovation was being stymied to a significant extent by some rather startling claims from cognitive science, particularly that cognitive science mandates, has proven conclusively, that there's only one style of teaching that, in inverted commas, works that that is a rather traditional style. It's often called direct or explicit instruction. Now, this didn't marry with what I knew of the cognitive science that has been my stock in trade for the last 40 years or so. So I thought this needed exploring. If these beliefs were somehow or other jamming up or undermining teachers' confidence in the exploration of new styles of pedagogy, then we have to be damn sure that the science was right. And I wasn't sure it was.
0: So a lot of the book is taken up with this forensic critique of what you call D-I-K-R, direct instruction, knowledge, rich curriculum, which one could refer to as Dicker, and I'm going to do that. I think because that underlines my questioning of it. So, tell us what the kind of key tenets of this Dicker direct instruction, knowledge-rich curriculum. What are the key tenets of that of that view of the world?
1: It's a traditional view, which says that the business of education is largely, if not exclusively, the transmission from the authoritative teacher to students of secure, incontrovertible bodies of knowledge, and that these bodies of knowledge are not only necessary but sufficient to equip them to cope well with the modern world, and that the most effective way, in fact the only effective way, of transmitting these bodies of knowledge is by having youngsters sitting in rows in a room, facing the front, being told important things and having them explained to them and then practicing them and then being tested on them. So it's what what's called tell practice test or TPT kind of pedagogy.
0: And I mean, you, you criticize this from many different perspectives, but I thought one of the most telling is it's based upon and a lot of Bad science, I think, is similarly based upon an incredibly simplistic idea of how the brain works. so at the heart of Dicker is this kind of view that our brains are really made up our learning brains are made up of two bits there 's a kind of long term memory bit which is capacious and where all the knowledge that we 're going to you know use goes and then there's the short term bit, the kind of working memory which they portray as a kind of funnel, which can only hold a certain amount of information. And so the whole of their model of learning is that you want to shove things into the long-term memory as if it's a kind of box in our brains through this funnel, which is the working memory. And that one of the reasons you need to focus on very simple, direct forms of pedagogy is that this working memory, it's a very small funnel. And if you complicate it with, for example, asking children what they think, or engaging children, or not just talking about knowledge, but in some ways trying to inculcate wider skills or even wh- deeper capabilities, that all this will jam up the tiny funnel through which we have to force knowledge into the long... I mean, I, even as I describe these ideas, they, sound, <laughs> it sounds odd, doesn't they it? sound kind of medieval. But this is the model, though, isn't it?
1: This is the model, yes. And it was a model that was born around about 1967, when people were being very excited by the arrival of digital computers. Psychologists have always latched on to latest technology to provide a kind of working metaphor for thinking about the mind. So the digital computer became, for several decades... The go to metaphor for thinking about the mind. If you open up a computer, you see something that corresponds to working memory, some sort of amalgam of the central processing unit and the RAM. And then, physically separate in a different place, is your hard disk, which has a much larger capacity. And things get shuttled, little packages of information get shuttled backwards and forwards between these two things. Well, this is a metaphor. This whole territory is bedeviled by metaphor. I mean, we need metaphors to get going, but we mustn't fall in love with our metaphors. Even the Dicker folk often talk about the fundamental architecture of cognition, that this long-term memory, short-term memory. Well, architecture is itself a metaphor. What does it make you think of, the metaphor arc? It makes you think of something like the Acropolis, doesn't it? It's like it's solid, it's abiding, it's important, it doesn't change and so on. This model of the mind was derived from very simplistic experiments, getting people to remember lists of things that didn't add up to make any sense, like lists of random digits or random words. And this model has held sway for quite a while. But, to my reading of the literature, no longer. This model has had its day, and it is at least highly contentious, if not well past its sell-by date. There are now other models of memory which don't rely on this structural distinction between this, as you say, this funnel or this bottleneck of working memory through which everything has to be squeezed and which is a ubiquitous limiter on what goes in and out of your mind
0: and an important part guy of this of this account because you know one of the things reading your descriptions of the theory and and I know you quote extensively the champions of this view of the world, so this isn't, this isn't kind of hearsay you give plenty of space for us to hear what they they think but part of the reason why for listeners this sounds so incredible is because for us as as adults, the idea that learning is not enhanced by us engaging or participating in the process of of learning something new. The idea that our emotional predispositions, our views about our own confidence in learning things aren't relevant is just completely and utterly ludicrous. No adult would say none of this matters. Just put facts into my brain, and that's the only way I'm going to learn things. So part of the theory has to be a theory about age as well, doesn't it? Because because this is such a completely ludicrous way of thinking about <laughs> how adults learn, we've got to suggest that children's brains are very different. And they're very clear, aren't they, the Dicker thinkers, that young brains are almost incapable of engagement, participation, taking any kind of control of, of learning.
1: Well, it's not so much. It is kind of young brains. There isn't actually an argument that they make that young brains or young minds function in a qualitatively different kind of way. But they do try and make a hard distinction between novices and experts, and you could say children are novices and adults are experts. Novices don't know anything, so they can't be expected to think. So you have to fill their heads with facts, which is knowledge is another tricky word, isn't it? Because it's, it's, some people have a very narrow view of what they mean by knowledge. It's like it's facts. It's like, you know, what is the capital of Guatemala? or, you know, it's that kind of thing. Whereas other people have a much broader view of knowledge, which would include what the scientists call procedural knowledge, skills, dispositions, a whole lot of other kinds of things. So we need to be thinking about, does that hard distinction make sense? And it certainly doesn't make any sense to me. You know, novices are people who are undergoing an apprenticeship. They start from where they are and gradually through thinking, through experimenting, through practicing, they build on what they know in increasingly sophisticated directions. If you look at the process of being a novice, it's all about building out from what you know in a gradual way. There is no hard and sharp distinction between novices who know nothing and can't think and experts who know a lot and can think. It is, to take your word, a ludicrous distinction.
0: I mean, I remember... Many, many years ago, being at a a seminar in Westminster where a politician, well, I I think I can say his name, Nick Gibb, because I think he's an unashamed fan of this way of thinking about the world, was there. And one of the things that he said at this seminar was, the idea of practical learning, he said, is a middle-class idea foisted onto the working class because middle-class people don't believe working-class people can actually be academically successful. So they give them this second-rate thing called practical learning. And I remember Jeff Mulgan was at the seminar And he said, but what about medicine? What about the army? You know, these are (laughs) major areas of work where the idea that you would learn without practical experience and engagement would be completely ludicrous. So, I mean, what I guess I have to ask about this, and, and we're going to get into this in a minute. It's not that all of these ideas are all bad. It's just that when these ideas come together as an iron ideology and when they also involve caricaturing any position which is different as being sloppy you know liberal progressivism that's where the problems start so i guess the question guys this kind of rigid way of talking about the world rigid way of talking about what knowledge is of how the brain works of what learning is of all of this kind of stuff which is pretty ludicrous when it's when it's put under any kind of pressure why has it managed to be so powerful because over the last 10, 15 years, it has probably made the weather in terms of how the layperson thinks about learning.
1: Yes, that's back to my my original motivation for writing the book, because, you know, we need to be able to inhabit, I mean, for me, all the interesting things that are happening in education – inhabit some kind of middle ground between the extremes, the the stereotypes of progressive and traditional teaching. There are nuances. Teaching is dynamic. It involves a dance, if you like, between exploration and explanation, and actually trial and error, as you say, practical learning, going out and trying things out. So what's happened is, as you say, this the weather has been made by people who are adopting a very extreme view. The claim is that this model of the mind, as I say, mandates only one style of teaching, which is very traditional and anything else, which was called project learning or, or discovery learning or guided discovery or anything else, it's like anything else is disallowed by the science. And that, therefore, if we believe that, innovation in the middle ground is stopped. It's debarred. And our quest for a pedagogy that not only transmits knowledge, but transmits knowledge plus the dispositions and the attributes of mind, which are so necessary at this time in history, that's a massive mistake to, as it were, debar that exploration from the outset on the basis of some presumed f- solid finding by scientists, you know, scientists with a capital S.
0: So let's move away from Dicker and its rather strange way of thinking about the world. And, and let's talk about two or three of your own ideas or ideas that you, you present in the book. So I want to start with this notion of epistemic character. Sounds like a terrible bit of jargon. Well, it is. A ter- Let me be frank. It is. It, is a ter- it is a terrible bit of jargon. So unpack it for us, because behind that jargon is a really important idea, I think.
1: All it means is that knowledge is necessary but not sufficient for being able to function intelligently. You need to be, as, as, as I've said, we need our imaginations. We need to be able to concentrate. We need cr- our critical thinking. We need to be skilled articulators. We need to be respectful collaborators. It's like I can't imagine anybody denying that. The Dicker view, however, is, again, it's a a bit of magic, is that if you fill people with enough knowledge for long enough, somehow or other these things will automatically happen. And that just seems to me to be an extraordinary article of faith. I think it's perfectly possible, and I could point you at people who are full of knowledge but don't think very well. They can spout what they've learnt, but put them in a novel situation, require them to think on their feet, and they may not be very good, not very skilled at all. So the question is, are we paying enough attention to this other aspect. You know, we ought to be building knowledge and forms of intellectual expertise and these wider and broader There's a whole vocabulary here because so many people are trying to get a grip on this. 21st century skills, non-cognitive skills, habits of mind, intellectual character strengths, or because I'm a professor and I need to think up a fancy phrase every now and again, or your epistemic character. The way in which you engage with things that require learning and thinking. And that's what we need.
0: So again, it's important to see the kind of symmetry of the position in here, which is on the one hand, that these, these kind of qualities, the way that we learn, our confidence in learning, our broader intelligence, that these magically emerge when a certain sufficient number of facts are shoved into our brains. But equally what they want to argue is that none of this stuff, this other stuff can be taught. So whilst I can learn facts, they argue very strongly that it's entirely bogus to suggest that I can learn to learn, for example. Yes. And that's another thing which you want to take on in the book, isn't it? And you have this notion of the the river of learning and teaching is, is your way of trying to get a more holistic account of what can take place in a successful educational setting.
1: Yes. I mean, I find the guiding metaphor, the underlying metaphor that Dicker folk seem to rely on a lot of the time, it's like a it's like tug of war. It's like there's some kind of necessary conflict between teaching knowledge and developing learning skills, let's call them that briefly, as if there was a necessary competition for time and attention and so on. So one aspect of this is that these skills are simply can't be taught, as generic skills, and the other is that the only way you could teach them is in a similar kind of way to the way that you might, you know, teach the kings and queens of England. That is to say, you have to kind of be taught them and you have to learn them. And that's, it's a different kind of learning that builds these habits of mind. It's a slow cultivation of these learning skills or or learning dispositions that occur when you find yourself, when the classroom in which you find yourself has a certain culture, has a certain characteristic, or as I say, a certain kind of undertow that is either, I mean, crudely, you walk into a classroom and there's, you can almost taste it, there's either an undertow which is pulling students in the direction of becoming more dependent more passive, more compliant, more only interested in the grade, more is this going to be on the test, sir, more timid about making mistakes. And there are many classrooms that do have that culture. And on the other hand, the kind of classroom that we need to have if we're going to build these life skills is one that is drawing youngsters in the direction of becoming more independent. More imaginative, more able to manage and organize and plan and evaluate learning for themselves, because none of us is going to be followed around the rest of our lives by a caring, hardworking teacher saying, That wasn't very good. You need to correct this. Seven out of ten must do better.
0: So, one of the things that is part of the, again, of the Dicker narrative is that the alternative to this direct instruction knowledge rich curriculum In fact knowledge traditional subject based traditional forms of pedagogy the alternative really seems to involve teachers saying to children here's a project spend the next hour and a half doing what you want to with it and at the end whatever you say I'll say jolly well done to you and you can walk off to the next subject so they contrast their approach with kind of basically completely unstructured pupil led project learning. Now You want to argue instead that actually probably the most effective method of of teaching is is guided discovery, and that is as you 've been already saying guy it's it 's this kind of drawing on the best of the best thinking that comes from a more traditional perspective and the best thinking that comes from more progressive perspective. So children are engaged in the process. Education is not seen as something which is done to people, but it is a process of discovery. But yet that process of discovery is strongly guided. It's very structured. It's very carefully planned and it relies upon high quality teaching. Do you want to give us guy, you know, just a couple of examples of guided discovery in practice? Because they they appear in the book.
1: Yeah, sure. You're absolutely right. There's plenty of research literature about this. I've got a couple of recent papers, 2021 papers, on my desk, which I'm reading at the moment. The title of one of them is Children Persist Less When Adults Take Over. In other words, when adults are too controlling, when they insist on explaining everything up front... Persistence is undermined. And there are some very, I was just reading this today. I'll quote you some conclusions. Why is children's persistence decreased? One, because taking over, it's like being too bossy, explaining everything up front, being this kind of taking over the learning process signals to children that these tasks are too hard for them and that they're unlikely to be able to succeed on their own. And if they get that message, then there's no point in persevering, is there? The second point they make is taking over teaches children that when tasks are hard, an adult will do them for you. In other words, the busy dicker-type teacher is, you know, there's no hesitation to rescue children from difficulty, to let them flounder a bit. There's no sense that grappling with something is productive. The other paper that I'm reading is about actually an undergraduate course, which shows that precisely if, as many schools are now doing, but nothing like enough, if you start a topic with a well-designed, what a chain of schools in the US call a grapple problem, which is something that the teacher knows is beyond the student's current capacity, but not so far beyond that they can't have a go at it that they don't have any ideas about what to do. If you start a topic with a grapple problem, you put the exploration before the explanation, then when the explanation comes, it is understood much more deeply and much more persistently, and learning is more successful. Now, that makes sense to me, but it doesn't seem to make sense to the kind of hard-nosed people who insist on this radical opposition between it's either direct instruction and nothing else. It's like only one extreme end of this spectrum is legitimate.
0: So in the book, you give some descriptions of particular schools and particular teachers and particular lessons, and anyone who's interested should, should get the book. And I defy you as a parent. You know, I've got two grown-up sons and a, and a young daughter not to read about the lessons and the way they're taught and think, that's the way I would like my child to be educated. Now, We're kind of running out of time, guys, so I'm going to ask you two or three kind of slightly more challenging questions, I think, because, you know, I'm with you nearly all of the way. But the first thing is, I guess, and this partly reflects the RSA's own experience with our Opening Minds curriculum, which in the end didn't work. And the argument here is that in the end, although progressive, broadly progressive, robust progressive, guided discovery ways of working are better than the traditional way, they're also harder. And that actually... In a world where every teacher was incredibly skilled, incredibly motivated, your methods would work better. But given that teachers are, like any other profession, distributed around the kind of standard distribution, which means many of them are average and some of them aren't that good, the Dicker approach is more kind of foolproof. It will be okay even if your teacher isn't great. How do you respond to that?
1: Well, the Dicker approach is good for some things and good for some students, it's not all wrong. It's like if all you care about, and this is where most of the the research underlying Dicker comes from, if all you care about is short-term improvements in students' ability to retain and produce secure knowledge, if that's what you care about, then the direct instruction way may indeed be efficient. But my whole worry, and the worry of lots of people around the world, including the RSA, is that those gains in test scores are not sufficient indicators of powerful and appropriate 21st century education. So we need to be broadening our sense of the repertoire of desirable outcomes that we want, and thinking about rethinking our pedagogy so that it does both. There's quite a lot of research which shows that, as one of the examples that I just mentioned, which shows that if you explain too much, if you do your direct instruction, you can get your short-term gains in knowledge acquisition and retention, but at the cost of the diminution of students' resilience and their curiosity, And their imagination.
0: I understand that guy, but with due respect, you're not you're not actually answering the question because the question I'm asking is: in a world where teachers are fallible, a teacher who is average or not very good teaching dicker will probably produce some result, whereas a teacher who's average or not very good trying to do the more ambitious, more challenging, more engaging form of teaching that you encourage. Is more likely to fall flat on their face, and then generate some of the problems which Dicker advocates are, are fond of pointing out, which is that you know kids in the end don't learn a great deal.
1: Yes, and 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 you know the progressive tradition has been at fault and has been you know rightly criticised for sort of an open ended styles of teaching which is kind of the progressive end of the spectrum done badly. Both ends of the spectrum can be done equally badly. So part and parcel of what I'm arguing for, Matthew, is a sustained, in-school, focused, clearly targeted, continuing form of professional development where everybody understands what a broadly appropriate style of pedagogy looks like and everybody is being helped to every teacher is being helped to move in that direction so i resist the idea which was sort of implicit in the way you phrase this that there are some teachers who are good and some who are no, some who are middling and some who are not very good i think we need a powerful culture of seeing teachers as lifelong professional learners as well constantly getting better because you're absolutely right what i'm advocating is a sophisticated fluid dynamic, nuanced form of teaching. And we need a culture in which every teacher understands that they're heading in that direction.
0: Okay, so that takes me then to the kind of the hardest question I think I've got for you, Guy, which is this. We haven't, in our interview, mentioned any of the names of the advocates of this dikr approach and that's deliberate because once you start naming names and suggesting that people believe things and you get into kind of twitter wars and stuff like that but i do want to name one person and the person i want to name is Catherine burble singh because she's somebody that you who's the head teacher of Michaela community academy which is the kind of poster child of the dicker movement because it advertises itself as incredibly traditional as also incredibly disciplined and it has good very good results, and very good results with some kids who've got some quite challenging lives. But at the end of the book, there's this fascinating point that you make, which is that there have been two books written about Michaela Community School. The first one, which is really hardline Dicker, which you kind of criticise at various points in the book, but that last year, a second book was published. And actually, this second book looks like it's really very much on a journey to where you want to get. So it, it still sees that the Dicker method can work in important ways. It's it recognises the importance of proper, supportive, consistent discipline, which you too recognize. And that leads me to the question, you say at the beginning of the book, and you use this word punch and judy, that what you really want to do is to overcome this trad-progressive divide. You want to find a new, a third way, if you like, in this post-COVID world. And I, One of the reasons I, I'm so excited about the book is I too think it's desperately important for us to move beyond this dichotomy and, see, and focus on what we can agree about. But yet, I wondered why you put that at the end of the book, why in a way you didn't start the book with the fascinating fact that the school, the person, almost beyond anybody associated with this approach, does themselves seem to be on a a journey to a place where actually you and she, you and the Michaela teachers would have quite a lot in common.
1: Yes, well, I, out of courtesy, sent Catherine My drafts of my discussion of Michaela, and to her mind, there was almost no meeting ground at all. I thought I was being rather fair in my discussion of Michaela, but she was resisting a lot of what you're now saying, and sort of retreating a bit from the second book, and saying, "Well, that's individual. That that's only individual teachers. That that's not necessarily the school philosophy." So I ended up thinking. You know, I think I said in the book, my section on Michaela is entitled Two Cheers for Michaela. Because I do, I really like the fact that they have a strong, consistent culture in the school, which is about developing habits of mind. And the important habits of mind which they focus on are those which I guess many of the children who go to that school don't have. They haven't developed them. Habits of self-regulation, self-discipline. Basically, you know, being able to listen to someone else and take in what they're saying, to sit down and be quiet, those basic forms of self-regulation. And their culture is draconian about establishing that, if you like, that foundation of being able to establish a learning environment within which there is silence and people listen to each other and so on. Where I part company and where Catherine pushed back at me is, for me that's a perfectly legitimate if the kids that you've got in your school don't have those basic skills then let's inculcate them and i don't have any trouble with doing that in a pretty explicit way you know they they talk about boot camp and no excuses and so on and you know i can understand that But for me, having established that culture of of all those habits of self-discipline and respect and listening, then why don't we then open up and go on to talk more about building the capacities for collaboration, for imagination, for mindfulness, for a whole lot of other things. And there still seems to be a kind of resistance to going in that direction. So I thought we were meeting more than Catherine thought we were meeting. So that left me slightly puzzled.
0: Well, this is such an important debate. I, I don't disguise where I come from in it, but more than anything else, and really for many, many years at the RSA, I've been desperately hoping that we could bring together thoughtful people from either side of this divide and focus, as I say, on what we agree about and also try to agree what we disagree about. One of the most depressing things about this debate is the way that people caricature each other's positions rather than engaging with what they really are. And and Guy, look, at the end of your book, I feel even more passionately convinced that it is vital for us to try to develop a new common ground approach to how it is we make schooling suitable, how we make schooling fit for the 21st century. I have to say also, though, that in the the end of the book, and also in terms of what you've just said to me, I'm not hopeful about that. I hope I'm wrong. And if any of the Dicker enthusiasts that we've not named, or Catherine and herself want to come onto this pod and, and talk about it from their perspective, I'd be happy to do it. Not to have a row, but to see whether we can find this desperately important common ground. Because in the end, it isn't really about us. It's about the children and what is going to work best for them. Guy, thanks so much for spending this time with us.
1: It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me, Matthew.
0: That's it for this episode of Bridges to the Future. We'll be back soon with more insights and analysis. But if you've enjoyed this conversation, I'd be so grateful if you could rate and review it in your podcast app. But for now, thanks from me, Matthew Taylor. This was a Tempo and Talker production for the RSA. We are the RSA. We enable the game changers of today to shift systems, challenge norms, and create impact where it's needed most. Visit the approach to find out how. And let's make change happen.